And just this morning I introduced the fourth Brahmavahara, which is Upeka, or equanimity. And again, just to acknowledge that due to the limitations of time, we aren't able to cover the subtleties and the nuances of any of these practices. But what I have been hoping to do is to give you a taste of each of them so that you can continue exploring them at home, exploring them, adapting them, and creating your own ways of developing them. Because as I've been trying to emphasize, there's no one right way to do this. It's more a question of listening, listening to our current life circumstances, listening to our own hearts and minds, and then sensing into which practice might be needed now, and then finding the most appropriate way of doing that for us in the moment. So I hope that if nothing else over this weekend you've understood that Brahma-Vihara practices can be much more than simply reciting phrases. They can be a very creative practice, one that we're constantly changing and adapting to suit what's unfolding in our lives, to suit our ever-changing relationships. So with that as a preamble, I'd like to briefly return to equanimity now and to acknowledge that often, as we orient to this quality of non-reactivity, what becomes most obvious is the opposite of equanimity, all the ways we are reactive or resistant to what's happening. So I haven't had too much time to speak about what are known in this practice as the near and the far enemies of the Brahma-Vihara. But basically each quality has its opposite, which is known as the far enemy, and then also something that might seem like it's in the right terrain, but it's just a bit off in some way, and that's the near enemy. So in the case of equanimity, the near enemy is the kind of false equanimity that I spoke of this morning, that tendency to suppress or deny our emotions and try to convince ourselves that we're just being equanimous. And then the far enemy of equanimity is any kind of reactivity, any kind of wanting or not wanting so it includes all the various afflictive emotions such as greed, aversion, jealousy, despair, boredom, anxiety, judgment, anger, and so on. And because these Brahma-Vihara practices are so-called purification practices, that means that they will often show us what's getting in the way. So if we do sit down to practice equanimity and we find ourselves caught in all kinds of reactivity, that's okay. It's actually the practice working as it should. And the trick is to try to have equanimity for the non-equanimity and to find an appropriate way of working with whatever the reactions might be. So what I'd like to do now is offer just a few suggestions for working with those more entrenched, afflictive emotions that can come up when we try to work with the Brahma-Vihara, and perhaps especially equanimity. So the first thing to keep in mind when working with difficult emotions 
is that we're always trying to maintain some degree of balance in relation to them. So as you know, the Buddha put a lot of emphasis throughout his teaching on what he called the middle way. So in terms of difficult emotions, we can think of that as the balance between, on one hand, not just avoiding, ignoring, denying, repressing the emotions, and on the other, not falling into, not feeding, not indulging, or getting overwhelmed by them. So to find that balance, we need to listen to ourselves, to pay attention to the context we're in, to be aware of our capacity to manage these challenges, and then, when the timing feels right, we might choose to investigate what's going on more directly. And there are just a couple of cautions with this process. If the reactions or the emotions that we're exploring are very intense, perhaps in the realm of trauma, we want to touch into them in very small doses, just enough to strengthen our immune system, but not so much that it overwhelms it. So in my own practice, many of you have heard me joke about a technique that I developed that I call post-mortem mindfulness. And post-mortem mindfulness is a way of trying to understand some kind of reaction we had after the fact, with the purpose of trying to get more clarity about how we got triggered in the first place and how we might prevent that same reaction from recurring again under similar circumstances. So technically this is not classical mindfulness, because mindfulness is supposed to be in the present moment. It's more of a form of inquiry or investigation. But it does involve bringing awareness to what's happening in the body and the heart-mind now as we recreate what happened during the original reaction. So this technique works best for exploring those more habitual responses or overreactions that feel like they're based in some kind of deep conditioning. So, for example, perhaps an anxiety response that's out of proportion to the actual situation but feels very familiar in some way. So in my own practice, if I become aware of something like that, I wait until the conditions are right and then I take some time just to go back over what happened, imaginatively replaying it in slow motion, frame by frame. And I try to do this exploration with as much embodied mindfulness as possible. So trying to stay out of the intellect with all of its thoughts and assessments and judgments and arguments and that tendency to just dig the trench of the narrative, the story, even more deeply. So we're trying to avoid reinforcing those ruts in the mind. And instead, I often like to do this lying down so that I can stay more connected to the body. And I might place one hand on my belly, one hand in my heart, so that I can very directly feel the sensations in the body. And then I try to recall that situation where I got reactive in as much detail as possible. And as I do that, I'm listening to the responses in the body and in the heart-mind. 
Sometimes there are unexpected physical sensations or images or memories or associations that come up and often more underlying subtle or complex emotions start to reveal themselves if I'm patient. And usually this is new information, new information that can help me to understand how those default patterns and that reactivity took over so that next time I'm in a better position to not fall into that same pattern again. Now, it does take training to stay present with those afflictive emotions and not go up into the intellect, which is a very common way that we try to distance ourselves from the discomfort of feeling those emotions. And at first it probably does take some effort to keep bringing the awareness back to the body. And often our first response when we do come into contact with a difficult emotion is to tense up in some way, to physically contract, to tighten, to brace, to resist. And that tightening only makes the whole experience more uncomfortable. But with training we can start to notice that first resistance very directly in the body and learn how to soften and to release it. So there's a mantra that I use for this invitation to soften the resistance. It comes from the Zen teacher, Charlotte Joko Beck, and she talks about making a bigger container. Making a bigger container, or A, B, C. So what this means really is making space for that reaction. So usually when we contact an unpleasant reaction, there's an automatic contraction or tightening. And we all have our own symptoms of this. For some people it might be tensing of the jaw, or the shoulders hunching, or the arms bracing, or maybe fists starting to form. So ABC is the antidote to that contracting energy, because it invites us to make space for whatever the reaction is. And you can do this physically, just by sitting up straighter, opening up the chest, softening the shoulders, breathing a little more deeply, perhaps softening any tension around the eyes, the jaw, the chest and the belly. So the first step is to physically see if you can release any tightness but if that doesn't work, we might need to make a bigger container by opening our eyes, taking in the space of the room, so then we're borrowing the space around us. And if that doesn't work, we can open to the space of the sky, so maybe looking out of the window, or if we're outside, looking up and taking in that vastness as a visual reminder of the space that we're trying to make. So one analogy here is that this is a little bit like putting a wild horse in a small corral. If we put a wild horse into a small space, it goes crazy, it bucks, it kicks, and the energy is very intense. But if we can let that same horse out into a bigger meadow, the physical energy is the same, but because it's in more space, it doesn't have nearly as much impact. 
So ABC is that invitation to metaphorically let the wild horse play in a broad meadow. So sometimes that releasing of tension helps the intensity to reduce, but other times it doesn't. Perhaps there's quite an intensity there. And at those times we might want to bring in a second strategy, which is what I call touch and go. So we just touch in to the emotion. We feel it in the body for just a few moments, and then we go, either metaphorically or literally. So metaphorically we might just bow to the mind state and then deliberately put our attention somewhere else on something that's not unpleasant. Or if it's really intense, we might need to physically go. So we go away, we do something that's pleasant, nourishing, restorative. And this is not cheating. So this is a way of what I call titrating the dose. So in the medical profession, we talk about titrating the amount of exposure to the drug. In this case, we're wanting to take in just enough of the difficult emotion so that it strengthens our immune system, but not so much that it overwhelms it. So one way we can do this is by putting time limits on our exposure to it. So on one retreat when I was working with some really challenging, painful emotions, I would literally set a timer for 30 seconds and I would stay feel into, allow that emotion to be there just for 30 seconds and then the bell would ring, oh, thank goodness, and then I would go and do something completely different. If you can't go and do something different, then you might just change where you put your attention, orient to something that's pleasant in your immediate experience. Or if you can't find that, you might bring to mind a memory of a time when you felt at ease, happy, open, and so forth. And you try to bring that memory to mind as vividly as you can. So it's not cheating to move away from difficulty. If it's done with mindfulness, it's actually what we call skillful means. Because we're doing it in the service of staying in balance. And this is important because sometimes people, especially who've experienced trauma, have this belief that they're supposed to drill down into their deepest, darkest, most intensely painful emotions and stay there, and that's good practice. But usually what happens with that attitude is we just end up re-traumatizing ourselves and digging those ruts in the mind even deeper. So gradually, gently, kindly, and with an abundance of self-compassion. So self-compassion is a kind of a universal antidote to all forms of pain and suffering. And yet, as you probably know, many of us find self-compassion quite challenging. So just to move into that carefully and gently, and even if it's just momentarily putting a hand on your heart, and acknowledging just for a moment what's painful and steadying any quivering that might be there. And if generating your own compassion feels difficult, you might imagine it coming in, perhaps from the archetype of Kuan Yin, 
or a person in your life who embodies that quality for you. So the more we can help to release these afflictive emotions, the more space there is in the heart and mind for the skillful qualities of the Brahma-Viharas to grow. And we want to really let that in as an antidote to the mind's inherent negativity bias and that tendency to fixate on what's wrong with our practice and to overlook, to disregard those times when we are actually free of painful emotions and some of those skillful states are coming up. So as the practice matures, we want to pay attention to the absence of the hindrances and to recognize when there is kindness, there is compassion, there is appreciative joy, equanimity, peace and freedom, even if it's just for a few seconds at a time. So in support of that, I'd like to circle back now to mudita practice to help us experience directly how we might use these different Brahma-Vihara practices in the service of balance. So, so far in this session we've been exploring painful emotions, afflictive mind states. So as an antidote to that, what I'd like to do now is take some time to tune in to the opposite, to let in aspects of our experience that are pleasant, that are nourishing, that are easeful. And I'd like to do this in two parts. So the first part will be a form of walking meditation that you'll do by yourself for about 15 minutes. And that will be a support for the relational practice that we'll do when we come back together in the whole group. So with the walking meditation, I invite you to take 15 minutes just to walk around your own environment either inside or outside or both. And as you do that, to tune into any aspects of that environment that are somewhat pleasant, that you can enjoy, that you feel a sense of appreciation or gratitude for. So for example, if I was doing it and I was just walking around my room here, I might notice the warm shawl that's draped over the armchair. And I might remember the feeling of wearing that shawl and remember the friend who gave it to me many years ago. And as I name that, I feel a sense of appreciation because that shawl has been on many retreats of me over the years. So there's a sense of warmth towards him, a sense of appreciation for his generosity. And then I look at the armchair and I realize it's been loaned to me by the people my friends who I'm currently living with. And those friends gave me this room to stay in when I've had to come back unexpectedly to New Zealand for longer than usual. So I feel a sense of warmth towards them, some kindness and appreciation of their generosity. So there's probably plenty that you can explore in your own environment as you do what I'm calling this mudita walk. And I suggest you might want to take a pen and paper with you so you can just jot down a few notes about what you discover. And then I invite you all to come back to the whole group and we'll have some time together just to report on what you've discovered.
Okay, so are there any questions about that practice? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.